I feel like we are approaching a very binary moment. And so I don't want investors to think that I am incredibly bearish or that I'm incredibly bullish. What I feel today is that whatever direction is next is likely to be dramatic. This is one of those moments where if what we're seeing have seen is the low, brace yourself for a blistering rally. If this was just a pre-taste of what's to come, brace yourself for a blistering decline. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new world order is becoming clearer by the day, and in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jim Kassan, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is someone that I wanted to speak to ever since I, a few years ago, heard him talk about how confidence in central banks is linked to the level of interest rates, which I thought was such an elegant and simple way of thinking about it. He has so many fascinating insights into the world of socionomics, social mood and human behavior that you are in for a real treat today. So please enjoy our conversation with Peter Atwater. Peter, thank you so much for joining Jim and I today for what I'm sure will be a super interesting and important conversation as part of our Global Macro Series. We started this season of our Global Macro Series with Dr. Ben Hunt discussing the importance of narratives. And today we very much look forward to expanding on this and diving into the world of socionomics, social mood, human behavior and confidence and how that, in my opinion, is likely to set the agenda for the world and therefore for the financial markets in the coming years. Now, since this is your first time on our podcast, perhaps I could ask you to set the stage and provide a little bit of context for our conversation, maybe by just telling us a bit of your background and maybe share a few highlights that shaped your path to where you are today. Okay. Thanks very much, Niels and Jim, for having me. Um, I, I have had two careers in life. Uh, the first looks like the typical... Uh, corporate finance career, you know, spent uh, 13 years at J.P. Morgan building their asset-backed securities business, um, left there to work for one of my clients and did a tour through several banks uh, before at age 45, as I was blowing out the candles, my then six-year-old son said, dad, you're halfway to 90. And uh, I decided it was time to do something different. Um, I, my wife, insisted that I not sign up to do anything. And I ended up, this is 2006, 
uh, watching the end of the housing bubble come to fruition. And with my background in securitization, having been a bank treasurer, having worked with the rating agencies and the regulators, kind of knew what was coming. Um, and so spent the financial crisis advising folks like you on how to how to work through it. Um, I got tired of the narrative, though, at the bottom, where there was a lot of blame being laid at different people, different organizations. And at the end of the day, I was like, no, people, everybody was overconfident. The regulators, borrowers, lenders, you know, just everybody. And that sent me down this rabbit hole of looking at confidence. And along the way, uh, stumbled into work that Bob Prechter had done on socionomics, which really changed the way I looked at things, where um, suddenly mood as an input as opposed to an output began to reframe how I looked at it. And since then have spent you know, the past decade or so really getting deep inside the psychology of confidence and the psychology of decision-making and have a framework now that I use to evaluate the markets, consumer behavior, and things like that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fascinating. I can't wait for us to dig into some of these things. I think that it was Vladimir Lenin who once said, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And it certainly feels this way when you look at the world the past couple of months. But I think we need to maybe go back a bit further and to fully understand the importance of the changes we're seeing right now. And... Um, we act as we feel, but uh, of course, history shows that we seem to learn very little since we tend to repeat the same mistakes. So perhaps I could ask you to talk about socionomics, if we can call it that, um, and why this is so important to pay attention to in order to better understand what's going on right now in the world and perhaps maybe share a few examples that helps us understand how these events are linked. Sure. So... Socionomics looks at the relationship between mood and decision making, um, and, and I and I think people are familiar with what I would call socionomics light, which would be phenomenon like the Hemline Index or the Skyscraper Index, where there is this repetitive cycle: hemlines go up because people feel frisky; hemlines go down when people are in a bad mood. You know, tall buildings go up, and and so you see different ways that confidence manifests in decision-making. And, and that's the really the, the field of socionomics. And, and they've looked at everything from economic and financial decision-making, so buying things in the market, selling things, to uh, political decision-making, to cultural decision-making. And, and what you start to see are the parallels in the behaviors. So you see in lows in confidence, um, highly emotional, highly impulsive behavior, financial in the markets, in politics, in culture. And, and so those, those trends become, I think, useful indicators for investors because on the surface you'd say, well, what, does, what do these things have to do with the markets? But we're not good at compartmentalizing our level of confidence. And so I, I like to see what are, what are wealthy people doing um, outside of the markets? Where are they vacationing? What are they buying? What are they doing? And that gives me clues in terms of what they're likely to be exhibiting in the, in the, as investors. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And is it correct that there seemed to be a bit of a time lag between when we start observing things or changes in sentiment before they show up in the financial markets? Um, so to some extent, you could say that socioeconomics could be viewed as a kind of a leading indicator at all, or am I off, off the path here? Well, there's been some really cool work done looking at sentiment on Twitter. And what you find is that mood on Twitter, and they do all sorts of language analysis uh, to, to come up with this, but basically how we feel and express ourselves on Twitter rolls into the markets on a 24 to 48 hour lag, you know, ex barring exogenous events. So, so there's no question to me that, that mood is driving what happens in the markets. Um, and, and so you can see that the parallels even in the media. So, you know, one of the things that I notice routinely is the media is a great mirror of mood. Um, it's not leading, it's not following. If you're in the business of being a media company, resonance to mood is rule number one. And so I, I read the front page, I watch what's on television, not because I'm interested in, in it per se, but what are the editors of the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Economist putting on the front cover? Because that's, that's intended to resonate. Yeah, interesting. I've got a couple of more small sort of uh, introductory questions and, and then, Jim, if you would chime in in a second. But you mentioned the media, and this is actually something I wanted to bring up anyways um, because it plays an important role in all of this uh, for sure. And I'm just wondering, when you look at it, how the techno uh, technological revolution that we've seen in the past 20 years, including social media, media like Twitter, how that may have changed socioeconomics if you we can call it that or, or or how it's evolved maybe with it that influence so i th i think that mood moves more quickly it transcends society faster and broader but i i i caution that that's nothing new you know during during the financial crisis of 2008 i read a lot of financial crisis porn you know went back and looked at you know, one crisis after another. And I, and I remember bookmarking somebody's comments from the crash of 1857. And you would say, why? And, and it was a comment that unlike prior crashes, it took just days and weeks to play out. And it's sort of like, hmm, what was it? And then the, the author goes on to, to attribute it, obviously, to the telegraph. Mm, that course, yeah. prior crashes didn't have that means of communication. And once you see that, and then you think about radio in the 1920s, you think about television in the 1970s, suddenly you start to see that all technology does is enable mood to, to spread wider and faster. And, it, and it's one of the things that I think policymakers globally woefully underappreciate today. That when you when you put trading technology twenty four seven in people's hands, the potential to to close markets at a drop of a hat is especially high here. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, one other thing I was just curious about in terms of what the impact might have been. I, I don't know if there was a specific impact. I don't know. But it is kind of what happened around COVID, right? The whole lockdown and working from home and and all the changes we went through. And, and of course, there would have been some kind of impact, I'm sure, on, on social mood here. How do you see that? Because, again, you would think that this is something we haven't really tried before as a, as a as a world society so how does that fit into your into your picture so uh, in a couple of ways um, what's been striking to me has been the disparity of confidence between those at the top and those at the bottom in the last couple of years and you know I'm the, I'm the guy behind the k-shaped recovery and it, it had nothing to do with economics it had everything to do with confidence And what I saw was that if you were able to work from home, to isolate, you your confidence rebounded dramatically because of the ability to self-contain. And, and today we have this Downton Abbey system of delivery where you know food and goods and you know everything is brought to your door. So isolation has never been easier for those at the top. And, and so you saw their confidence skyrocket. And and at the bottom, if you had to go out into a hospital, to supermarket, to deliver things, all this stuff, you you just didn't recover. But the other piece of it is what we saw among young people during this period of time, and we saw really nihilistic, a, a very nihilistic response to the pandemic, and manifesting in the trading world through you know all the the reddit stuff that that you've probably talked to you know too much about but that i think was a a fascinating parallel phenomenon where you had at the very top of the market you know which i put back in the beginning part of 2021 this concurrent bubble of extraordinary confidence among the financial elite paired with this fuck it mentality among those at the bottom And that sort of swept together in things like SPACs and crypto, and um, and it's just a it's just a, been a very interesting time where behaviors at the top and the bottom are parallel, but for very different reasons. I'm going to lead Jim you into the world of finance now because I want to just share with Peter um, how I got uh, to learn about his work and uh, why I really have been looking forward to Peter joining us today. Um, it goes back a few years and this was of course uh, at a time where none of these uh, dark clouds and pandemics and all of that uh, existed. And I heard you talk about, and I think it was actually with one of uh, a, a guest who's also been on on, uh, on the Global Macro series, Daniel DiMartino Booth. And I heard you talk about that confidence can be really seen, uh, well, confidence in in the Fed and other central banks, I imagine, it really relates to the level of interest rates. And I thought at the time when I heard it, wow, that's so simple, but yet so true. So I want, if you don't mind, if you could share with our audience um, what it is you've learned about that relationship, and then Jim will take us into the world of finance, no doubt. Sure. So, you know, the, lots of comments, you know, particularly over this last decade in terms of, you know, Tina, there's no alternative, you know, don't fight the Fed. And all of this got me thinking about, well, 
how would you measure society's confidence in the Fed? And that sent me back to the late 1970s, early 1980s to say, when did people think the central banks, particularly the Fed, was pathetic, that they had no confidence? And if you go and read what was being said about central banks and the, the policymakers in the Eccles building, you'll see that in the late 1970s, as interest rates were spiking, confidence evaporated. There, there was absolutely no confidence that the Fed could turn inflation around. And it then became so obvious to me that, okay, interest rates are, are a reasonable proxy for our confidence in the Fed, that the higher rates go, the lower prices go of bonds, the less confidence we have. And then it became very easy to see in this cycle since then, you know, the, the Greenspan cycle, the, the extraordinary belief of Bernanke and, and Yellen at these lows in confidence that, you know, QE could solve all of the problems. Then you sort of say, okay, negative interest rates, wouldn't that be an expression of overconfidence in central bankers? And so that's the spectrum that I used. And I think it's been interesting and, and quite confirming to see that since I talked to, to Danielle, that, that the confidence in central bankers is waning as interest rates are rising. Absolutely. What's on your mind this morning, Jim? Well, socioeconomics is, um, socioeconomics is, is something that I, I think is very important sentiment. It's something that I talk about on a micro level um, with dealer positioning, right? Uh, people position in the markets, particularly the options and vol space, based on their mood and based on their fears. Um, and ultimately, uh, that has reflexive effects on the market. We've studied this in great detail. We actually have a, a fund that, that specifically takes advantage of that. But what we've found through that positioning is, is that it's not directional. Like as a, as a human base and, and as broadly thinking about markets, people think up and down. And the way it, it tends to, from our perspective, affect markets is unless uh, you get a, a bad enough outcome, you know, if people are very bearish, let's say, unless you get a bad enough outcome, it reflexively hems in the move. But if there is enough dynamism to the move or there is enough of a real structural problem, right? I mean, at the end of the day, a nuclear bomb can go off, like something really serious can happen that affects the world in a meaningful way. And if something bad enough happens, it actually, instead of having a reflexive effect, has a magnifying effect. And in our markets, it's really this kind of gamma effect versus kind of these Vaughn and Charm effects. People who know me will understand what I'm talking about. I won't dive into that here. But it's important to understand that that's kind of the, that, that, that dynamic exists. You know, I think that's particularly relevant now when you think about bigger cycles, right? Because we're talking about, um, you know, populism that's been building over the last really decade, right? I mean, it's hard to b believe we had the Tea Party and fiscal conservatism conservatism just a decade uh, or so ago. Um, that populism has built, right, as a, as a function of the monetary policy and supply-side economics, et cetera, that we've seen and the inequality that's been driven by the Federal Reserve. And so I'm curious, people are very bearish right now. It's pretty obvious, right? We're in the fourth percentile now um, of, of mood, you know, of, of positioning and sentiment and lots of different metrics. I fear, and a lot of people are, are fading that, right? Reflexively saying, okay, well, we're, this is, this can't get worse. Like we have to bounce back. But we've, again, sometimes that become, can become reflexive. To your earlier point, the market was rallying and there was this nihilistic populism being expressed by crypto, 
right? I completely agree with that. Um, what happens when that nihilism gets expressed now to the downside, right? At the same time, things are actually breaking. And so do you have a mental model for socioeconomics as it relates to that? Yes, there's a reflexivity to it. I think that's people's initial reaction, right? Uh, when people get too bearish, be bullish. Or when people get too bullish, be bearish. But I think there's more to it than that. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I've probably been frustrating to my clients since you know, the last couple of weeks, maybe even months at this point, at my, my relative indifference between the bull case and the bear case. Because to your point, mood is really dour. Um, and yet we haven't seen any sort of a capitulatory event. What I sense is fatigue. What I sense is sort of the the family car ride that's gone on too long and the kids in the back seat have had enough and want to get out. And, and you know, there are some who would say, well, that that's enough to create a, a low. And it's like, yeah, I could come up with and did for my clients the, the, the bull case that there are plenty of indicators would say this is the low. And, and the analogy I used was October 2011, where you'd, you'd risen out of the financial crisis and then had a setback. People thought it was going to get much worse. You had the, you know, the famous economist cover would be afraid with the vortex on it. You know, lots of good socioeconomic indicators saying this is the low. And we could have just had that, that, that what we've just, or what we're experiencing is this setback from the bounce up from COVID. This is the relapse. And we go you know, we land solidly and take off and, and you can create a really bullish case, you know, for pick, particularly for places like Hong Kong and, and all of the, you know, the carnage, the long duration equities, the, the dream bubble that has, has largely popped. The, the challenge that I have with that is what I think of as stacked vulnerabilities that people are experiencing today that the hits just keep coming. And, you know, you, you, if, if I think about the weight that particularly the low-end consumer has today, housing, gas, food, we have a war in the Ukraine, we have scarcity, we have now school shootings. There's a, there's a burden to that. And that burden runs the potential of creating exhaustion, that it, this just it, it collapses on its own mood-driven weight. That that what today is described as uncertainty, as um, powerlessness, falls into despair and hopelessness, and that's a game changer. That's a that's a game changer because institutions are highly abstract organizations in a time where me here now reality is driving decision-making. And so you, you don't have the influence from a societal perspective on what's happening in the streets. Yeah, I think there's a big mean reverting effect in the short term, right, to sentiment uh, or even the, the midterm. There is a momentum effect, though, when you start looking out longer. And, and let me get to what I mean here. 
uh, populism. I think we both agree, and I think it's pretty obvious, uh, you know, Trump or um, uh, whether you're looking at, at, at Trump or Bernie Sanders in the U.S., both have gone left, right? Uh, globally, populism has become a thing, and that's a function of inequality that's been building. Uh, COVID released kind of the hounds, right? It, uh, it allowed that 12 trillion in fiscal policy, which is a you know populist revolution by any other name, happen. But if you look at crypto, um, for example, um, you've had this distrust of government by the labor class, which is the younger generation. Uh, you've had this belief in technology's ability to solve all these problems, which has been driven by unlimited monetary policy and, 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 and chasing dreams. So crypto has um, perpetuated kind of uh, the market bull. But as it turns, it kind of uh, it vanishes, right? It, it liquidates. You're going to get a bit of the opposite. Also, populism drives fiscal policy, which drives inflation, right? Inflation hurt, drives populism more, right? Um, and at the end of the day, more populism means more price controls and fiscal policy in some way, which at the end of the day reduces liquidity. So these are some of the momentum factors, right, to sentiment that I think we are, that, that sometimes are underappreciated. And I think really, um, you know, could actually, and I think the populism one in particular, you know, once it gets going, uh, you know, much like you had a positive uh, feedback loop to monetary policy and and uh, free market economics, you have a negative feedback to a rebalancing that happens to to equality. So um, I, I think that's that's an interesting, important point to kind of socioeconomics. I think it's incredibly important. But at the end of the day, how does it affect supply and demand? And, and there's multiple different factors, which I think are interesting. Do you think on the crypto side, uh, going back to crypto, that that as you know, I know your views are that it's it's likely to see another leg down, right? Um, and and that uh, that that will cause a lot of anger. Do you feel that uh, if that happens, that 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 will? How do you think that that angrily chan channeled? What do you think it will lead to? Ultimately, I'm curious. Yeah, so I I think that crypto runs the risk of being an enormous betrayal. Um, and and that it becomes a triggering point for the eye-opening to a, a cycle of what I call griftization um, that has occurred since the banking crisis. That what we've seen is the, the financialization of self-promotion like never before. And it has appealed to the very high end when you look at folks like, you know, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And it's been overwhelming at the low end, politically, financially. There are lots of parallels in, in the cultish figures and cultish behavior that we see. And, um, and I know people will take offense to my use of the word, but I mean, I mean it in its true dictionary definition in terms of, of blind and eager followership in fantastical promotion. And, and here it's a, it's a precarious thread that gets pulled because it's in so many things. Um, and I think especially for young people who had nothing to lose, invested it, and to lose it again is going to be where you see dramatic change. You know, youth and revolution is a, is a common pairing. <laughs> and this brings in issues of relative wealth inequality 
age and demog- you know, all sorts of demographics. And, and I think what those on the left and the right are so overlooking is that the real battle isn't political ideology left and right. It's more up and down. And how does that divide become resolved? You know, what, what happens between those at the top and those at the bottom in power, in, in money, in all of these different measures that I look at? Um, and that, that's what I think we have, we have yet to see unfold. Could that, on the other hand, Jim, result in an enormous wave of, of money into cryptocurrency? Absolutely. The, the question in my mind is, what in that environment does the crowd decide has value? You know, people, if you, if you, if you look in a prison environment, ramen noodles have an extraordinary value that is, that is underappreciated elsewhere. But, but we will pick something or some things that we believe matter most to us and and that's where you know economic value will be will be moved yeah i think um i couldn't agree with you more you're going to hear this a lot i'm going to try and disagree with you more but i think i agree with you on a lot of things here um that inequality is the real issue here the populism and we've seen this big cycles this is what drives big cycles right and natural and, and, and natural selection and free market economics Inequality is a nat- you know is a natural state of things, um, but we as humans believe in equality and justice and all these things which are un- not natural constructs necessarily. That when exerted upon this natural system, create big booms and busts, and that's what populism is. That's what revolution is, and it generally, to your point, feeds into the 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 young because the young are the labor class during the boom and they don't have the assets and they don't benefit on the way up. Um, and they're also young and emotional, right? And, and they have the energy to fight. Um, so that tends to be the case. And I agree that's what we're seeing. Crypto was a clue, right? Crypto was that zeitgeist embodied in markets. It was a desire to catch up. Uh, it was also for this generation, again, believing in technology's ability to solve all the problems because that's what came. It makes tons of sense. And I fear you're right that when, when crypto does, or if it does ultimately have a washout, it will only feed in to that lack of hope that is left. I'm curious where that channels, right? Uh, that revolutionary impulse seems to be, if you think about crypto, focused on money, on monetary, right? And I wonder, I mean, you, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Fed, under the, the, sh- the, you know, the shade of darkness, built barbed wire fences around itself in the last uh, month and a half. It hasn't been publicized, but I think there's this fear uh, of credibility at the Fed. And, and I think that's I don't think enough people talk about what that might mean ultimately for America and for broadly um, overall. So I'll shut up for a second, but I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts. I want to, yeah, I want to add to that to, to 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 that discussion a little bit because I think one of the things that has changed to some degree. I mean, we can get upset if we lose money, right? Prices go down, but I think what's changed for me, at least to some extent, is uh, what we saw with Luna. Um, because suddenly it brought out some real anger. I mean, if you look at some of the Twitter feeds from people we, I think we all know who are well uh, on all these platforms and, and, and so on and so forth, and who have been encouraging, let's say, the crypto world. Um, some, of course, have been 
you know, outright pumping it, I'm sure, but others have just been very much focused on it. The anger towards these so, you know, kind of rock stars, uh, you know, really, really interesting to see how how the tone uh, has changed. And I also wonder if there is, and I think you've talked about this, Peter, at some point, that there might also actually be a risk to the people at the top. So we we think about the, the the people at the bottom struggling through all of this, but what about the people at the top who may have borrowed money against uh, assets that may not be worth what they were? And you know, so I'd like to bring that into the this crypto segment if we can. Sure. So one of the one of the unseen bubbles to me in all of this is the the level of borrowing those at the top have undertaken since two thousand and nine. Um, and I've said this before, you, but you know, a bank like J.P. Morgan has more outstanding in its private bank than it does to its entire credit card portfolio. Wow! Um, and that was, you know, just a, an staggering acceleration of of one, while the other has, has remained largely flat. And so, behind the scenes of all of this, we've seen a growth of leverage to those who have been presumed to be invulnerable. They have felt that way. Their lenders, their the, the entire entourage, you know, the luxury goods industry. I, 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 I look at the dedication of resources in the past 12 years to, to catering to the very high end and all of its many wants um, is just absolutely mind-boggling to me. And so, those at the top, I think, are are vulnerable in in experiencing a bubble burst that they and their entourage are, are woefully unprepared for. And there will be no sympathy. There, there will be no, this is not going to be 2008 again. You know, the, 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 the crowd will be celebrating um, the, the, the failure of those at the top. And so that's part of this closing of, of the gap. And one of the things that I I would encourage you to think about is we, we talk about confidence, but the opposite of confidence is vulnerability. That confidence, I have certainty and control. When I'm vulnerable, I have uncertainty and powerlessness. And what this huge divide has highlighted is that others have a good these two feelings of certainty and control that I at the bottom do not have. And, and when we talk about closing these divides, what we're really talking about is those at the bottom want to regain certainty and control in their lives and will take pleasure in contributing to the powerlessness and uncertainty of those who have had such extreme certainty and control in their lives. I think uh, you know this is a good tie-in to you know your K-shaped uh, recovery, right? I think we've had K-shaped recoveries for quite some time where people are diverging. Um, I know you called for one in you know uh, 2020, and to a great extent early on we had one. Um, obviously, the fiscal response um, has kind of uh, I'm going to argue made an X recovery, kind of got them going the other direction, right? And I think we've had so many K-shaped recoveries over the years because the Fed has been the only game in town, because monetary policy, by definition, is sending money to those who can borrow, which is the top. Um, and so 
to the extent that fiscal policy or responses to people um, is the new uh, mode of uh, you know dealing with inequality, essentially, um, are we going to see X type recoveries going forward every time uh, you know the market or the economy um, questions? Do we start to see pushes towards addressing uh, inequality? So um, I, I've joked many times that the significance of the K-shaped recovery was the resonance of the term. And I think it speaks to the to your point that we've had one after another after another, and that it's such a clear phenomenon this time that maybe it's one too many. And I, I think many are overestimating the ability to counter what could be ahead with additional fiscal stimulus. That the advent of modern monetary policy as a, as a theory, as a, as a concept, I think was itself a consequence of zero negative interest rates. It's something that's only believable in an environment where money is free. And, and I say that not, not as a criticism of the individuals, but just let, let's talk about it. why was it resonant? And, it, and resonance is only enabled because people believed in that environment that money was free. As money goes up in cost, responding with fiscal stimulus becomes more difficult. Now it becomes a question of choice. So I think you know, one of the obvious choices would be greater taxation as a means to help fund whatever economic um, malaise we're experiencing. But I, I wouldn't count on governments as being in a position to, to solve this with either monetary or fiscal stimulus. I, I think we've, we've seen the peak of the ability to do those, you know, Behind us, and I would also say that given the inflation that we're experiencing today, policymakers will be far more reticent to over-respond to the next crisis. That that they are going to be naturally more timid. You mentioned the word inflation, Peter, and um, today uh, at our time of recording, it's only been an hour or so since the latest uh, inflation data came out. I'm looking at a headline uh, saying that U.S. inflation quickens to 40-year high. So I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, but I want to I want to I want to talk about inflation in a slightly different way um, because sometimes I think we just talk about the word inflation, but really there are probably two kinds of inflation. There is this kind of expected inflation, something we can build on, something we can rely on, something we can plan after, and then there is this unexpected inflation, which is probably what we see now, because nobody was really expecting this kind, this level of inflation. And by the way, unexpected inflation means that it can also go down a lot from time to time and then goes back up again. So it's probably more the kind of the 70s type inflation. And I, I was curious to know, because I think the the unexpected inflation is much worse, I think, uh, than than expected inflation. And I'm I'm really curious to know whether this is something you've Uh, have thought about the difference in inflation because it, not a lot of people talk about these differences between two these two types of inflation and so that how that might tie into the whole thing about confidence I imagine as well. Yeah, so I I don't think of inflation as an economic phenomenon as much as a psychological one. And there it ties to feelings of scarcity. So it, what inflation creates for me, as a particularly as a low-end consumer, 
is enormous feelings of vulnerability because things are now scarce. I, I can't afford them. And so I have to start to make choices and those choices cognitively are difficult. And so uh, in, my, in my classes, we talk a lot about poverty, not as a economic condition, but as a psychological one. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing. I think the stress cognitively, emotionally that goes along with, with these issues, because to your point, the wildly swinging inflation destroys predictability. And again, certainty is, you know, one of two legs that I need to stand on to be, to be confident. We do, we don't like environments of control, but no certainty. It feels like Las Vegas to us. And so we, we need to have a better sense of, of certainty. Now, having said that, what's so interesting about today's phenomenon is we have this huge connection between markets, economic inputs, gas, food, and the economy. And I, I call it, we, we live in a mark-to-market economy where investors can now speculate in all of the things that you and I need to live on in, in our real lives. And so what I think that that creates is, a, is an environment of huge spikes up and down, which have the potential, particularly right now, to create a complete miss where everybody is expecting prices to remain high and as a, and we see them violently collapse unexpectedly. And I, I, you know, there's a headline quote from Janet Yellen this morning, you know, gas prices are going to be high forever. I didn't, you know, something, something like that. And those, those, the way she said it caught my attention because it's just an extrapolation. And I, and I think what we're likely to see is sort of the, the lumber phenomenon moving through product after product after product that, that investors, the, the, the zeitgeist moves it too fast in one direction only to move it too fast in the other. And I'd be curious, Jim, you're nodding up in your head up and down. So I, I, I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I think this is incredibly important, right? It is the, the, the cost of money and the cost of money is feeds directly into supply and demand. And I always, I think it's easy to, I think socioeconomics and psychology are all critical to understanding a part of supply and demand, but I'm very mathematical in nature. I think about derivatives and it's always, I'm always measuring, we're actually measuring real time supply and demand and factors that relate to that. So um, there is a real structural supply and demand factor uh, to, to interest rates going up and just in terms of money in the system and money in pockets. I will take exception, uh, and this is somewhat to be polemical, but I think it's important with the idea that that volatility and expectations uh, of, of interest rates is bad. Um, uh, I actually uh, would say that right now, uh, what the Fed wants least of all, and the most dangerous thing for this market, is expectations of higher inflation that are more people have more confidence in. Um, I think that is, you know, long-term inflation expectations are the worst possible thing for the system right now. Um, and the Fed knows it. That's why, by the way, people are like, the, Fed, the Fed's an idiot. How, how could they think this was transitory? I didn't think it was transitory. They were simply trying to tell the world that, you know, please believe it's transitory. 
Because if you believe it, at least long-term interest rates will come down. Um, so, you know, the reality is, and we know this broadly, that, you know, long-term inflation expectations beget more inflation because two reasons. One, people bring, uh, you know, investment forward. They start building inventories. They start buying things now because the costs will be higher later. A and B, if if inflation is six percent, uh, you know expectations are that there'll be six. It'll be six percent for the next two three years, and interest rates are three. What's everybody going to do? Everybody's going to go borrow at three, anything that's pinned down, leverage it four to one, and buy more of it, which pushes inflation higher. So the whole system is this momentum factor. If long term expectations for inflation go higher, the whole thing begets more and more and more inflation. So I think the Fed is actually trying to create volatility and expectations for interest rates. Actually, I think uh, any confidence that inflation is going to be here is quite possibly the worst thing uh, that can happen to the system. So that, I'm just going to push back on that a little bit and curious to hear your thoughts. No, I, I agree with you. I, th I think the Fed is determined to push the markets into a corner. Um, and if, it, if they just have to keep raising the Fed funds rate um, to do that, they, they will do that. Um, no, I, I agree with you. And, uh, you know, the, the job market gives them latitude, um, more latitude than I think people appreciate. But but I think we need to recognize that they're going to push it and keep pushing it and keep pushing it. And the, the breaking point um, on the other side of it is, um, to your point, Dan, about deleveraging all of those inflation expectations. And at the end of the day, you know, how do they do that with the tool that they have? Uh, I think, you know, they don't have the right tools, really. They have to take money out from corporations. And, and you know, much like uh, monetary policy was actually deflationary for all these years, we somehow believe that by pulling away monetary policy, we can also create a deflationary environment, which, yeah, they can eventually if they just take all the money away, drop a bomb on the whole economy. But it's, it's really the wrong tool for the job. So I think that's the existential problem that we're facing right now. Speaking of equity markets, and I don't know whether this is something actually that you do um, agree with or follow, but I heard, I heard you earlier talk about Bob Prechter. And of course, a lot of people will know him um, as the longest running publication on Elliott Wave. Um, but of course, they also, uh, as you referenced, uh, he has spent a lot of time uh, on socionomics uh, for sure. And um, so I don't know whether you uh, see any links in in what you see in terms of the social mood and changes to social mood and what they're expecting in terms of markets where they have been and I will say that because I've been following them for a while that they don't always get it right but um, they are looking at this you know the largest uh, cycle top that you can have within Elliott wave terms you know I think they call it a grand super cycle high and or turning point but it is a high turning point this time and and then essentially uh, something that could uh, in their view end up being a bear market in equities like we saw in 1929 so I'm just curious whether you in your work actually also look at these things and try and tie tie them together in terms of where markets might go because clearly if they're right this will have a major effect on on the world economy yeah so you know, I, I do read Bob's work and the work of his team and have a, a huge amount of respect for it. Um, I 
I am not an Elliotician, and so I don't spend a lot of time focused on wave counts and and the like. You know what I what I'm looking for in my in my work is you know indicators of extremes in sentiment, and and here I I would say that we saw an extraordinary extreme a year ago January, that you know whether you you look at SPACs or crypto. What you saw was a bubble in abstraction, things that were fantastical with enormous you know, time horizons and valuations to go along with it. I, I think the term long duration equity understates the, the magnitude of the abstraction um, and, the, and then the valuation we put on those abstractions. The, the, the challenges we speak today is if you look at a lot of those abstractions, They've been beaten with a stick. You know, they, they have been absolutely pummeled at a time when the, the bigger, stronger major indices have, have gone into a bear market, maybe-ish. But but behind the curtain, there's a lot of carnage. And so the, the question for me is: is that carnage likely to rebound? Could it rebound? Could you see not that this Past January was the top, but now some sort of a hyperbolic price ascent. You know, the, the, the danger in calling the tops of the bubbles is they, they have this wild way of coming back from the dead. And having talked about Tesla in 2019 and, and felt the sentiment then, I was like, look, everybody expects him to go bankrupt. Be careful what you're wishing for. And we've seen you know, the, the resurrection of what happens when you have carnage and dreams come back to life. And so I think you can make a case, albeit I think it's a, a hyperinflationary asset bubble case, that you could have another, another wild and crazy upward cycle. And so here the question is, is this 2006 going into 2007 where what we've seen is the LIFO unwinding of a bubble, that the last in wild and craziest stuff has unwound first, and eventually what you get to are the too big to fail enterprises, AKA big tech. So this is, this is one of those where if we start to see big tech drag and, and and become vulnerable, then this is a repeat of what we've just seen in a in a in a broader um, collapse of of technological dreams that does incorporate and pick up the the biggest of the big, and and there that has enormous ramifications to the passive investor because they are so overweighted in in big tech. Yeah, absolutely. And and to your point, actually, Peter, um, when we spoke with, with your friend Grant Williams a couple of weeks ago, we actually talked about the fact that uh, one of his other friends who actually lives here in Zug, uh, Felix Zulauf, had exactly forecasted kind of what you re refer to there, that we would see like a 30% correction this year, but that it would end up being a time where you actually would see a doubling of equity markets into 2024, and then everything falls apart. So he he sees exactly what you described there. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen, but it is interesting that we can't be sure 
you know exactly how this is going to play out, which makes it a very interesting, but a certainly also a very difficult time to be an investor. Another thing I wanted to uh, ask you about is uh, also relating to uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Peter Zion, who talks very uh, clearly about this trend towards deglobalization um, that we're heading into. And I'm curious, now we've had 50 or even 70 years of globalization and what what describes that or, or, or is, is stability and peace and all of those things. If he's right, that's a major shift if we're going towards deglobalization. So if he is right, how do you see that impact the whole thing about confidence? It could be in different countries. It could be in different currencies. Everything seems to be up for grabs if we're heading into a deglobalized world. Yeah, so I'd look at globalization as a consequence of rising confidence. Um, in, the, in the parallel, I, it's a concept I call horizon preference. When we are under threat, you know, the bear is outside of the tent. The only thing that matters is me here now. Myself, this immediate time horizon, this immediate physical horizon. Those are the only things that I care about. As my confidence rises, all three of those broaden. And at the extreme, we embrace something that I call us everywhere forever. We're collegial, we're consensus building, we're peaceful, we're, we're, we are the world embracing of, of things that are abstract and different and, and not just the, the people, but the places, the geography. It's, it's a, it, this, this huge accordion opens in, in terms of relationships, in terms of time horizons and geographic horizons. And, and I think you can make a case that we're somewhere at near a top of it. You've got people exploring Mars. You've got, you know, all sorts of interconnectivity. You know, you could, you could say Tom Friedman called the top with his book, you know, The World is Flat. So the consequence of that, is, to me, deglobalization will be a consequence of, of falling mood. We naturally balkanize. We naturally divide. We, we move from way outside in this abstract circle to the middle of the circle being all about me. And that, again, has huge implications for the World Health Organization, the UN, NATO, you know, these, these, these supra-international bodies become too abstract and irrelevant because the, the, the crisis I feel is right here. And I think we got a bit of a preview of that with COVID, if, again, if confidence falls. Right, so that's quite interesting because Sorry to interrupt you here, Peter, because I, I want to try and really understand that because what you're saying is that deglobalization is a consequence of change in social mood. So what I'm curious to understand is, okay, so what if everything is going great, what is it that starts to change the social mood that leads to the deglobalization? Now, I can understand a pandemic can do that for sure, but is there anything else that you've seen that causes the change in mood before we head towards all the other consequences that that I want to understand a bit better. Yeah, so the, so the biggest cause of all of this, I always say, is the overconfidence that precedes it. You know, we have a hard time identifying what is the tipping point. What's the thing that right. sets it in motion? You know, if I go back and I look at the confidence charts around the collapse of the banking system, what you'll see is that 
economic confidence bottomed the weekend Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so to say that Lehman caused confidence to then rise is a just a very uncomfortable statement. But if, if you're looking for causation, that is true. I, I would say that what Lehman marked was the hopelessness and despair that goes along with bottoms. And so the, the question to try and answer yours is, at peaks, there's rarely a single moment where you can say, this was where we where we were most overconfident. I, I feel that you know, with the markets, maybe I can put that around January 2021, but the unwind will begin on its own. You know, look at what just happened kind of a thing. It's, it's a very subtle deterioration in mood. I'm going to jump in here. I think I couldn't agree with you more. It's a deviation from equilibrium, right? The further you get away from some equilibrium, and this is why cycles happen, the more fragility there is. doesn't mean that moment things are going to break. Um, in this cycle, it's been uh, inequality, right? It's been monetary policy driving. Um, and I would argue, by the way, to your globalization question, Neil, is we got globalization massively for 40 years because corporations were given more and more money. And what is a corporation intended to do? Increase profits. And in order to increase profits, they got to lower costs, right? And so there's this massive push that's been happening. And it's a cooperation game at the top. Right. And we've been in this massive cooperation game where everything works. But inequality was the result of all of that. Right. And the populism that came, because, again, we got a, away from this equilibrium is ultimately what has you know, pr pricked that that bubble. It's what brought, again, Trump left and brought uh, fiscal policy and now is in the process of of going the other way. Populism is correlated with nationalism. It's 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 uh, correlated with competition over commodities and scarce resources because the prices are going up. And that's also ties into the geopolitical stuff with Russia and China, and, you know, Russia and Ukraine and China support. All of this is connected, but it essentially at its core, to, to Peter's point, is a, is a move away from an equilibrium to far enough point where fragility um, kind of uh, presents itself. And I think that's the important point. I couldn't agree with you more, Peter. Yeah, we're naturally xenophobic when confidence is low. Absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing that puzzles me a little bit that I'd love your thoughts on, Peter, and that is we talked about technology earlier and how that have had an impact on the media side, right? But it's also had an impact on how we spend money. We don't buy things anymore. We we subscribe to things. We lease things. We, you know, completely changed. And and I imagine that, you know, especially with inflation coming in, that that changes things for the consumer um, because now they have to decide on on other things, so to speak. What what subscription don't I need anymore? Whatever it is, how how does that play into your your work? That kind of change in in our behavior, I guess it is. So so I I, I would put subscriptions in a broader bucket of the me here now phenomenon in the economy. So whether it's, you know, the iPhone, you know, Keurig, TikTok, Twitter, you know, everything has been oriented around me here now, satisfying our me here now need. So subscriptions are, are just another, in you know, a wave of it. 
And and I and here I think it's worth highlighting for you know older listeners. You know, this Polaroid capitalized on the same phenomenon in the in the 1970s. You know, this is the first time we've seen this sort of me here now monetization. That and, and you see it in Airbnb and Uber and all of this me here now utilization of assets. The challenge is that for the consumer. They have the ability to throw everything overboard this afternoon. I can cancel it all. And so you have a, a time horizon mismatch between consumer preferences and the support system that provides it. Because you've got long-term capital and long-term debt and long-term you know, commitments that are enabling all of us to, to live this me here now elective lifestyle. And, and I, it feels oddly like the mismatch I've lived through as a bank treasurer between short-term and long-term rates, the, the mismatch that you've seen in the commodity markets between long-term take-or-pay contracts and, and volatile markets. Uh, I don't think that this mismatch ends easily. And inflation will put more pressure on terms of what do we just throw overboard. And, and interestingly, and I don't mean to belabor my point, you're seeing organizations like Netflix in response trying to be more rigorous in their passwords. And that's only going to piss people off more. You know, you, you, you enabled me to do it for free, and now I've got to pay full price at a time when I'm already frustrated and angry. Yeah, I'm out of here. Screw you. Yeah. No, very interesting. Speaking of themes like that, um, I'm curious, have you studied from an investment point of view, I mean, we all know that certain strategies have worked really well in the past decade or two, like, say, private equity and stuff like that, where you could kind of set your own valuation when, when you feel like it. Um, but have you studied in terms of what themes, what investment themes might actually work well when social mood changes to the downside? Because many of us have never really experienced that. So if you think of down, you know, bear markets as being a retreat from abstraction. Well, the, the two things that immediately come to mind are cash and commodities, because you know, we, we refer to them as real assets, and we know at lows and very lows in markets, you know, people want physical cash stuffed in their mattresses. You know, you, you at the at the lows in two thousand and nine, people were advertising mattresses with built-in safes, so. If, if you think about it as far as a retreat from abstraction, you go from long-duration equities to value to you, sort of the, the pilgrimage to, to owning stuff that's real. And, and the, the question becomes, what do we ascribe value to in those moments? And here, if, it, if reality becomes based on physical goods, what, you know, grains, energy inputs, that has not just massive geopolitical implications globally, but staggering implications for the United States, because the entire supply of both of those is largely concentrated in the center of the country, and you have more than half the population on the coasts. I think that's an incredibly important point. I actually had that as a something I wanted to ask you about. I think that's very insightful. A lot of people haven't thought about that. You know, Peter Zihan, who was on here um, earlier, um, made the point that America, right, is an incredible place of strength, right, in, in a, you know, a, a troublesome sea, um, you know, that this 
crisis that's coming might end up being the best thing that happened to America because it is the place that is, you know, and to reinforce his points, we have, you know, commodities, uh, all the commodities we need, and then some, uh, both in terms of energy and food supplies. We are an island, right, that uh, has the biggest uh, military in the world and the intellectual capital, um, et cetera. So our threats are not likely to come from abroad, right? They're likely to come from within. And to your to your point, I, I think this is a thing that people are missing, is that the strength of commodities are actually going to support a part of America, right? They're going to elevate its strengths at a time of already, you know, increasing tumult. It's really going to drive the strength of cities down a bit relative to maybe the in- internal uh, part of America. This is something I hadn't really thought about. And I'm wonder- wondering if you if you think that somehow creates more existential risks to the, to the the political system here in the U.S. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So it's a matter of degree. The analogy I've used a lot is we may be the best house in a bad neighborhood, but mom and dad are getting divorced. And and so, you know, you have to look inside the house as well as, you know, outside the house. And so I think that there is a time period where absolutely the United States, the dollar, you know, there are lots of things that we we benefit from. But if if survivorship becomes the issue, then what's happening inside the house begins to really matter. And there, I think that you you have some interesting broader implications, you know, in terms of how how does this ultimately resolve in terms of of the internal workings of the United States. And and the one thing I remind people of is, please don't forget that the highest organization in the United States in terms of institutional confidence today is the U.S. military. And again, if the left and right are fighting with each other and you're trying to run a a military, a national military, that's a real problem. And I, I think people have oversimplified the divide in the United States. And what we know in environments of balkanization is that the alignments don't necessarily end up with where people thought they started. Speaking of the divide, and and I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, Peter, but I, I can't resist because I'm the only... Well, I guess, Jim, you have some European blood in you, but since I'm the only one located in Europe... um. I'm I'm curious whether you've thought about after all of this decades of increasing confidence and all of these institutions that we have seen rise as a consequence not least the EU and the euro do you think that we might actually head into a confidence crisis that is big enough to break up that union and even the currency yeah so you know, again, the, the question would be, was what we saw in the Greek crisis, the prior crisis, was that a low or was that an indicator of what is what is ahead? You know, was, was that a, a warning of, of potential vulnerability? And I, I thought it was interesting, you know, the term fragmentization suddenly was all over my Twitter feed this morning, which is not a term we've heard a lot. And so people are paying attention. And in that regard, I'd, I'd watch Turkey. Turkey to me is the, the oversized canary in the coal mine 
of a national crisis. It, it has been waning for some time, and you know how that hap- what happens there, I think, has real relevance, not only for Europe, but for NATO more broadly. And here, in, this is where national self-interest, particularly as it relates to food and energy, is likely to become a populist topic, as Jim throws out, that has nations competing with each other in terms of, of supply. So what we know is that the more confidence falls, the further we come apart. And so can Europe come apart? Absolutely. But it, it will be a function of, of what happens to mood between now and then. It's not a, it's, to me, it's not preordained. It, none, of, none of this is preordained. It's, it's, it's how low does mood go. I think your point about Turkey is very interesting. You know, obviously I'm Turkish, so I have a little bit of uh, interest there. The Turkey's always been the border between East and West, not just geographically, but culturally and lots of other. And it's really been tied to the, to the West in recent you know, uh, history. Um, in times of geopolitical stress, uh, it tends to become unmoored. And that beca- that's because uh, if you think about it, it has a benefit to be unmoored because it, uh, it can play both sides and it can become in the middle. And I think that's what we're seeing. I think we've seen it for uh, you know, about 10, 15 years, slowly happening. And I think it's accelerating. Um, Turkey is no longer, I mean, yes, it's part of NATO. Yes, it's, uh, you know, for a while it was trying to be a part of the EU. It was trying to be completely internalized. And then that not happening, um, now I think it is really, really going to play this, this middle ground, which creates more drama between East and West because it no longer has this Western bloc. Um, and I think it's very important uh, in that regard. And, and I think it is a critical place to watch in terms of the shifting tides of, of power and, um, you know, risks in the market. Can I add one other sort of related point? And this has to do with Russia. One of the things that is so interesting about Mr. Putin is that normally when confidence rises, we become generous, we become kind, more peaceful. There is a personality type that becomes more vindictive, that uses those feelings of invincibility to seek revenge. And so one of the things we know, looking at Russia over long periods of time, that one of the best measures of sentiment for Russian leadership is the price of oil. And so I think we need to watch oil because the higher oil prices go, the more aggressive I think we're likely to see Russia become in many aspects. I I don't think it's insignificant that we had a lot of Peter the Great references in this past couple of weeks. And again, the the further oil prices rise, the more empowered Mr. Putin is likely to feel. I think it's not necessarily a personality type. I think Russia and China are both hemmed in and have existential fears in the context of aspirations of greatness. And I think that's a a human trait when you feel at risk and you feel like there's no way out, you lash out. And I think, um, you know, there's a demographic problem in both countries uh, that they look forward and see themselves hemmed in at this point of extreme strength in the West over all this time. And they look forward and they see great risk. Um, so their windows are closing in a sense and they have to 
to act. So, um, but I agree with you in the context of that bigger picture, uh, having the strength to keep swinging, uh, getting the, the the strength that will only make it worse. I was just commenting. I was just going to comment on the oil price, and given the fact that we. I think have a pretty good idea that OPEC plus is pretty much at capacity in terms of pumping more oil. I I, I fear that uh, that Putin seems to be getting stronger, not weaker, uh, and 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 so with the oil price. I only have a couple of questions left, uh, Peter. We've taken a lot of your time. We really appreciate that. And you know, we obviously um, a lot of our listeners are in investors themselves, and and it's kind of interesting. Um, even though I heard you earlier, uh, Jim, say that. You know, it it feels like a bear market, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, to me, um, it doesn't feel so much of a bear market compared to to other periods so far. And and obviously, I shouldn't I shouldn't wander into the world of 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 the VIX at all in in this company. But I will say also that the VIX seems to be not necessarily spiking as much as as you would think. Um, but anyway, uh, what I was going to ask you, Peter, is. Is there any ideas or suggestions you can share uh, with our audience as to how you can implement a more confidence-driven decision-making? And I know this is not for day trading or anything like that, but just more how you think about investing from your perspective. Yeah, so so if I look at decision-making that's made in an environment of control but no certainty, which is what investing decision-making is. What happens is that most investors buy or sell based on the outcome that they imagine. And I deliberately use the word imagine because anytime we're talking about the future, we are imagining. And 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 I think it offends a lot of people, but it's like, no, let, let's, if you're talking about the future, rule number one is remember that you're imagining. And the, and the second aspect of that is, remember, too, that your imagination is a function of your own level of confidence. And so if I'm confident the future that I imagine is likely to be much brighter than the future that I imagine when I'm not confident. And so the degree to which you are certain of the outcome is expressing not the probabilities of that outcome, but your own level of confidence. If I'm capitulating and selling at the lows, what you're doing is expressing that you believe nothing can go right and that the outcome is only going to be disastrous from here. And conversely, you're buying at the top, you're buying short-dated call options at the top because you, you believe the outcome is, of course, only going to make me money. And, and I encourage investors to be far more ambivalent about the outcome they imagine. And that before you trade, before you buy, consider the absolute opposite scenario. And to appreciate that the less you can consider it, the less you're willing to believe it can happen, the more likely it is to happen. Because your belief system is too strong in a world of imagined outcomes. Interesting. 
Peter, there were so many things we could have asked you about. Uh, you cover such a broad uh, spectrum of very, very interesting and topical areas. So I just wanted to ask at the very end here, what did we miss? Is there anything you um, you want to kind of bring in towards the end here that we we forgot to bring up in our conversation? Yeah, I, I, I would just say, Niels and Jim, that you know we're talking here today on June 10th. And I, I want to be clear to your audience that I feel like we are approaching a very binary moment. And so I don't want investors to think that I am incredibly bearish or that I'm incredibly bullish. What I feel today is that whatever direction is next is likely to be dramatic. This is one of those moments where if what we're seeing have seen is the low, Brace yourself for a blistering rally. If this was just a pretaste of what's to come, brace yourself for a blistering decline. It's one of those times, and I and I go through this with my clients, you know, from time to time, where they're, they're, the setup is too unclear to take a stake because the price of taking a stake and being wrong is going to be dramatic. It's going to be you know, jaw-dropping of, of, man, I wished I didn't do that. Well, it's a great place to end our conversation today because I think it opens up uh, for us to uh, have you back uh, later in the year or next year to uh, talk about whether we did get a massive uh, dramatic uh, move up or down for sure. But Peter, thank you so much for spending uh, time with us today. We really do appreciate it, uh, as I'm sure all our listeners do. And by the way, make sure you get a copy of Peter's book and follow Peter's Twitter feed, which, by the way, is fantastic. And you can find links in the show notes, of course, because as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jem and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you as we continue our Grow Global Macro series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.